previously on Chicano Squad. The death of Jose Campos Torres at the hands of Houston police officers shook an entire community. A rookie cop who'd seen everything broke the department's unspoken code of silence. The officers were fired, but otherwise barely punished, and the Latino community erupted. Now, faced with a lack of confidence in all directions, HPD needed to find a way to restore trust and faith. My name is Asario Tomas Cornejo Mosqueda. You can call me Cecil, as everybody knew me in the police department, Cecil T. As a kid in Houston's Northside neighborhood, no one would have thought Cecil would become a policeman. Kids from Houston's Latino neighborhoods didn't usually become cops. But Cecil had always been a little different. I was like the leader of all the kids. All the kids would follow me. I liked to lead by example, and I was the top guy, you know? Growing up, he had a paper route, and he was loyal to that job all the way through high school. One day in his teens, Cecil was out on his route with some other paper boys. So we were all out there, and this truck pulls up. Cecil wasn't paying much attention to the truck. Then, all of a sudden, a few men walked up to Cecil, clearly the oldest among the paper boys. One of the men asked him, Hey, he says, you speak English? Of course he did. He was an American, born in Texas, who'd gone to public schools in Houston his whole life. Yes, sir, I, I do speak English. What about the other boys? The man asked. Yeah, we, we're, we're from here. We speak English. Cecil was annoyed. They needed to get back to work, and this man's questions were offensive. Then the man said, Okay. As long as you know how to speak English, we're not going to take you up. Suddenly, he says, it hit him. The green uniforms, the white truck. They almost picked me up. The only thing that saved me, I spoke English. Had I said, no, senor, no tengo papeles, boom. Just like that. They would have picked me up in a heartbeat. The officers drove away, leaving Cecil stunned. It wouldn't be the only time that Cecil would be typecast because of the color of his skin. But this incident stayed with him for years. I don't want people thinking this interaction Cecil recalled is rare. It used to happen to me growing up in South Texas. I grew up in a border town. I was born in the United States. And there were several times I was approached by Border Patrol, usually in McAllen, Texas. I knew English, and there were moments where that wasn't enough. I would get asked specific things like the name of my school teacher or what my favorite subject was and why. Cecil is right. Those incidents do stay with you. For him, it was a close call, a kind of moment where everything instantly could have derailed and sent him down a completely different path. He could have been picked up that day and ended up with a record or much worse. It wouldn't be his last close call. Eventually, despite his negative interactions with law enforcement officers, or perhaps because of them, Cecil Mosqueda would claw his way onto the force at the most pivotal moment for Latino officers in the history of the Houston Police Department.
I'm Crispel Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. En esta ciudad, hay necesidad, Cecil Mosqueda was born in 1953 in Port Lavaca, then a town of about 5,000 people perched on a bay off of the Gulf of Mexico, about two hours south of Houston. While he was a toddler, he moved to the big city of Houston, where the family grew and grew. Cecil's mother worked constantly, juggling at least two jobs. Often, it was pure chaos. You know, my parents were struggling. You can imagine they had 12 kids, and there was the economy and having enough food and all these kind of things, you know. And, of course, my mom trying to keep up with all these kids. How she did it, I don't know. And Cecil's dad? As a little boy, Cecil learned a lot from his father, including how to handle himself on the streets. One night when he was little, a group of boys marched up to him and said they wanted to fight. Cecil wasn't afraid to fight the boys, but with his father standing right there beside him, Cecil tried to hold himself back out of respect. Then his father asked, You want to fight him? Yes, sir. It was okay. <laughs> and the fight was on. And I kicked his butt and he went on home and that was the end of that. They moved houses often, from one crowded home to another. The pressure kept mounting. One day after school, Cecil's father sat him down. He was going to leave. And he said, you're the man of the house. I looked at him, I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I'm going to leave you in charge. You're the only one that's got a level head. So I told him, sorry. I was a kid, I don't, I don't know what he was talking about. And he said, well, I'm going to leave you responsible and you got your younger brothers and just kind of watch over them. One of the first things you notice about Cecil when you talk to him, the years of growing up poor, of being a police officer, haven't hardened him. Talking about his dad leaving, even all these years later, is still a lot for Cecil. Back then, he was forced to level up and become a man. He'd had that newspaper route since he was 11 and loved the independence it gave him and that it allowed him to help his mother put food on the table for his brothers and sisters. Now, the job became even more important. By day, he was a dutiful student, never excelling at school but always completing his assignments. And by night, he delivered the Houston Chronicle and collected payments sometimes interrupting family dinners. But most people didn't seem to mind. Here in this community, I was known even when I got in as a police officer, hey, paper boy. As Cecil made a name for himself in his neighborhood, his younger brothers were constantly in and out of trouble. Watching out for them like his father told him to do was much harder than he thought. The police were always coming over 
There was arresting my brothers. This one time, while Cecil was lying down in the back room of their cramped home, all of a sudden... I see my brother run right through the house to the back door, and then run to the front door, and right behind him, I see two officers run right behind him. Boom, 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 boom. Now get up at the, what the heck? The chase moved out into the street. I remember my brother, you know, he's running. He's just a little kid running all over the place. And I got out there, and the commotion was out there. The whole neighborhood was out there. This moment encapsulates so well the duality at work in Cecil's mind. In the moment, a police officer chased Cecil's brother. But in retrospect, it was as if his future was chasing his past. And I saw the poor officer huffing and puffing and trying to catch this young man, this little kid, you know. And he was out of breath. And I told my brother, I said, Joe, stop. Soon enough, the officer caught up with Joe and threw him in the patrol car for questioning. This was far from an isolated incident. Sometimes the juvenile probation officers who came by to round up Cecil's brothers were nice. Some were not so nice. Cecil knew he wanted better for himself. He wanted to show himself, his brothers, and the rest of the world that there was a way out of poverty that didn't involve prison or death. As he got ready to finish high school, college wasn't on the table. Then, one day, it all clicked. I think I was in 11th grade. Cecil went home from school to change before his paper route and excitedly walked into the kitchen to talk to his mother. I said, I know what I want to be. She looked at me and she, what do you mean, what do you want to be? I said, when I get out of school, I know what I want to be. And uh, (laughs) she said, what? I said, I want to be a policeman. His mother's jaw hit the floor. She says, por qué? Look at the way the policemen treat your brothers. I said, that's why. I told her, I want to see what's the other side of that fence. Cecil had made up his mind to become a policeman, but his heart had other ideas. During his senior year, Cecil became friends with a pretty girl who sat behind him in class. Charlene treated Cecil with a kindness few others had. They were raised only miles apart, but in different worlds. Charlene was white and middle class. Even so, they clicked. Well, a little more than clicked. She was pregnant by the end of her senior year. Even though they were only 18 and Charlene's parents did not approve, they got married and started to build their new family together. They were barely scraping by, and pretty soon, Charlene was miserable. She gave Cecil an ultimatum. If you don't better yourself, I'll leave you. It was a slap in the face. But then, Cecil thought about the dream he'd been holding on to for years. I know what I want. She said, what's that? I know what I want. I was um, 19 at the time. I want to be a policeman. There it was again. Fine, Charlene said. How are you going to do that? He had no connections to anyone in the police department. No relatives who were already in and could give him a leg up. No edge over any other applicant. But he had the drive. Come on down here. 
Come on down here to the Houston Police Academy. They'll be happy to show you the applications and the exam. Around the time Cecil got it in his head to apply to the police academy, HPD put out various promotional videos. If some of the archival news clips we've played in earlier episodes sound like they could be ripped from today's cable news, this one, called The Protectors, stands out as an absolute relic. It came out in 1966 and opened a window into HPD's pitch, which, in a nutshell, sounded like, join up, become a hero. In fact, if you are between the ages of 19 and 35 and can qualify, they'll probably try to get you to fill out an application because they're looking for cadets for the next academy class. The first step for Cecil was to fill out an application and bring it in, dressed and ready for an interview. I remember I got my best suit on and whatever. We had long hair, and there were some applicants in there with longer hair than me. They weren't even clean cut. At least I shaved a little bit and looked presentable. The year was 1971. The police chief at the time was Herman B. Short, a notorious racist rumored to be a KKK sympathizer. Not exactly a welcoming sign for Cecil. Twice, he says, he was turned down by the academy for disqualifiers like unpaid tickets. And each time, he had to wait a year to reapply. My wife is still on it, and I said, I'm still working on it. I'm going to get it. While he was attempting to get into the police academy, Cecil drove the delivery truck around town for his brother's florist company. My oldest brother was kind of hard, and he said, you're not going to get into the police department. He applied again, but now he found a new hurdle awaiting him. Remember that height requirement we mentioned in the last episode? At the time Cecil was applying for the academy in 1974, it stood at 5'8". How tall was he? 5'8". You sure about that, Cecil? Okay, 5'7", 3'4". But I'm going to tell you the secret. Nobody knows the secret. I knew you had to be 5'8". So you take off your shoes, right? But what they don't know, I did stand on my little tippy toe, just that little quarter inch. Bingo, 5'8". I made it. (laughs) He'd passed all the requirements so far, making it further than ever before. Next came the interview with a recruiter. In front of him on a table were stacks of papers. He says, okay, well, we looked at your family. All your brothers have been arrested. Cecil sighed. He knew what was coming next. If they were arrested, why weren't you? And I looked at him. I said, well, because I'm different than they are. I don't know. I'm just trying to do the right thing. And they believed him. Finally, Cecil was accepted into the police academy. But if he thought getting in was difficult, making it through the academy was going to be even harder. Walking in on the first day of class. I just saw a sea of white people. There was a lot of white officers. And I knew then, wow, the competition was on. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Now, if an applicant passes all the personal, mental, and physical tests, He then starts the required 16-week police cadet training course. It's far from being a snap. It was all confusing and unfamiliar. The cadets were competitive with each other, fighting to be the best in class and get their choice of assignments at HPD. 
Many had relatives who'd been police officers or maybe a family friend and seemed to know the ropes, unlike Cecil, who was all alone. To enforce the law, a police officer must first know the law. There's a federal law, state law, city ordinance, capital offense, felonies, misdemeanors, traffic laws, criminal laws, arrests, search and seizure laws, constitutional laws, and a few others. After a month at the academy, Cecil received his first paycheck. You know how much I got? It was a little over $600. I never forget that. I looked at that deal and I held it against my chest and I'm looking around. I said, oh my God, I said, they made a mistake. I had never seen that much money. Cecil wanted to keep the paychecks coming, and studying was the only way. Each Monday, he had to take an exam. He struggled early on, failing too, and eventually did okay on the rest. But then, after 16 weeks, there was one last giant test, the civil service exam. It's actually the stuff of nightmares. I didn't know what the civil service test was. We have to pass this exam. You've already passed the academy, but this is the final test to get certified by the city. For Cecil, who'd never really been taught how to study, the pressure and finality of the test was overwhelming. And uh, I just winged it. After the exam, the instructors summoned Cecil to their office. He was the only cadet they called. And then, in that office, Cecil hit a second moment in his life where it all could have gone another way. Everybody passed it except for me. He had failed with a 68. Cecil was crushed. Despite all of his persistence and dedication, his dream, which had been achingly close, suddenly seemed out of reach. But then, the instructors did something completely unexpected. They offered him a chance to retake the test. It was unheard of. But the trainers had developed a soft spot for him. Apparently, so had Cecil's classmates. When he told them what happened, he expected to get ridiculed. Instead, they rallied around him. They all kind of pushed me. It was a team effort, you know, and some of them said, we were going to help you study. This time, he walked in prepared and says when he saw his score of a 98, he knew he'd made it. The year Cecil entered HPD, 1974, like many others that decade, was intense. In Houston, Latino protesters formed a political party called La Raza Unida, which took hold across South Texas as a third option for voters. La Raza Unida supported ethnic solidarity and sought to protect the growing community of undocumented immigrants. In that community particularly, people were afraid to call the police for help out of fear of deportation. By the way, in 2021, that remains true. It was a tumultuous time to embark on a career as a police officer. But when Cecil got his uniform, badge, and marching orders, he showed up Monday morning with his eyes as bright as his freshly shined shoes. I was literally all caught. 
if I could have stayed there working 24 hours a day, policing all day long, I'd have done it. Cecil's young daughter, Laura, could tell how proud her father was of his new job. We had these mirrors in our living room and he would be in his, his uh, uniform all decked out, you know, and kind of looking at himself in the mirror, you know, kind of pointing the fake gun. It's a sweet memory from Laura of her father, but the job had a cost. Cecil's 24-7 comment wasn't an exaggeration. Cecil wasn't around very much. Laura remembers that, too. I don't think I really understood it, you know? I don't think I really grasped what it was to be a police officer or what he was actually out there doing. He worked a lot. I mean, I do have memories of him, like, you know, taking me over to my grandmother's house so that she could watch me while my mom was still at work, you know, before he went to his shift. But, I mean, other than that, I don't remember him being around too much. I was on top of my world. You couldn't stop me. You just... I love police work so much. I was just looking forward the next day to go right back at it again. He even took up a second job, a common practice for officers. While he patrolled during the weekdays, Cecil worked his extra job at night on the weekends, taking a post by the door of one of Houston's many cantinas. The watering holes served as the center for Tejano nightlife in the city. The extra job and paycheck were a dream come true. Plus, the owners and staff became his surrogate family, and the women who frequented the bar where he worked seemed to really love a man in a uniform. But for Cecil's officer colleagues, the cantinas played a different kind of role. Once, as a rookie, Cecil says he was partnered with a big, burly white officer who announced, we won't be looking for wetbacks today. Cecil says it was completely typical for officers to use that word. They used it all the time in front of him. The officers back then, I call them bubbas. The bubbas, that's the way they used to talk. They saw Hispanics as, you know, lower than they were. The duo headed for a cantina. While the white officer burst in the front door, it was Cecil's job to run to the back and check the papers of people who tried to flee. That day, with the white officer, Cecil says, the cantina was mostly cleared out by the time they got inside, so their sweep failed. And look, I know people today who are still hassled for their papers. But Cecil says this kind of stuff happened all the time back then. Just at random, if they're walking down the street, you just stop by and pick them up, and boom. You didn't have to have probable cause or any warrant, just... If they didn't have their papers, they would be picked up. Even back then, Cecil was torn, and it's a feeling that's only grown as the years have passed. To be honest with you, remember, I'm from here. I was kind of confused because I didn't know enough about that. But then, I was one of them. I was an American. To Cecil, yes, they might have shared an ethnicity. But that alone wasn't enough for him to just automatically relate to the people he'd been sent there to arrest. But as time went on, he started to feel differently about undocumented immigrants. They became real people. And then you realize the reason why they were here, to make a better life. I would have been one of them if I would have been there.
I was caught in the middle because I was a Hispanic officer from the barrio. So I knew how they were feeling. From Cecil's position in HPD, he believed he had a chance to change people's minds about police and a chance to change the department from within. When we come back, Houston finds itself in the grip of a historic crime wave, and Cecil finds himself on the brink of history. One morning at roll call in the fall of 1977, Cecil was assigned to train a new cadet, a striking young man with an athletic build named Bobby Martinez Gatewood. Well, Bobby had that mod squad look. Imagine bell bottoms and platform shoes. He had kinky hair or whatever. Good looking guy. Bobby was a very flamboyant kind of guy. Very well liked. Very handsome guy, you know. How could I say it? He had a character of his own. That first day, the two men discovered they had much more in common than it appeared. They were both products of Houston's vecindarios, both athletic and determined, and both Latino. It turned out, the two made a pretty great pair. Quickly, they bonded, and together, there was little the duo feared. But you always had to watch Bobby a little extra, Cecil recalled. He was brash and cocky at work and at play, out to win. He took up playing basketball with detectives and other high-ranking members of HPD and was equally aggressive on the court. The other guys couldn't get enough of Bobby. Meanwhile, as Cecil and Bobby threw themselves deeper into work, both of their marriages suffered. Cecil doesn't remember much of his first daughter's childhood. Work was nonstop, and he and Charlene continued to grow apart. They separated several times, including once when Cecil even moved out of their home and in with Bobby, who was also having problems with his wife. We wind up getting an apartment in Southwest Houston off of Dashwood. It was pretty nice back then, but I went back to my wife, back and forth. You know, we were always going back, you know, it's one of the deals. We are going through some times, you know. You were young, dumb. Months came and went as Cecil and Bobby rode together, answering emergency calls. But outside their squad car or their shared bachelor pad, there were even bigger problems. Houston sits atop an explosive rocket, and that rocket is its dynamic, throbbing growth. For as Houston shoots up as a city, it finds itself entering new problem areas which every metropolis encounters. This HPD promotional video came out in 1977, with tensions mounting between a community that thought its police force was too violent and racist, and a department that wasn't necessarily concerned with what the community thought. Perhaps the most disturbing problem is the increase of crime. In some cities, it takes on the frightening aspect of warfare as isolated incidents suddenly erupt into violence and death. The film, called Houston Policeman, Man in the Middle, is how the department promoted itself the year Jose Campos Torres was killed. It's interesting that their 1966 film was called The Protectors, and by 1977, HPD saw its officers more as a man in the middle. And it's even more interesting because that's the exact phrase Cecil used to describe his own position as a Latino officer. 
He felt like he was caught in the middle. In 1977, Harry Caldwell had been brought in as chief to try and fix a department on the brink of disaster. And part of that meant changing HPD's public image, which wasn't as easy to control as their promo videos. The ABC show 2020 even aired a segment they called Lawless Cops in August of 1978. It was all about problems in the Houston Police Department, and the local press was all over it. Houston Police Chief Harry Caldwell today reacted angrily to an ABC network program aired last night which focused on the recent problems in the Houston Police Department. Caldwell called the program sensationalistic and slanted. Caldwell was especially incensed that the reporter, a young Geraldo Rivera, didn't interview him for the story. Seems patently unfair. As a matter of fact, seems a little bit cowardly that this person wouldn't even walk into the station to ask the chief of police what his policies were. Chief Caldwell was still visibly agitated when the local news circled back to talk to him. All he had to do was come in here one-on-one and ask me, and opted not to do so, because you got the distinct impression there was a great fear of the truth. They didn't want the citizens to know that these were the acts of individuals, not of a police department. That last line there, it's still at the heart of the conversation we're having over 40 years later. You know, the whole a few bad apples explanation for police misconduct? Harry Caldwell was working hard to sell that logic. But just like now, it wasn't landing with a lot of communities. And even though Caldwell defended HPD against Geraldo Rivera's accusations, he did make moves to reform the department. Just to put a fine point on it, Caldwell ultimately responded to critiques of the department with reforms, something that police chiefs could be doing today. Caldwell, a meticulous former drill sergeant, then turned his attention towards the procedures, or lack thereof, that he believed had led to Jose Campos Torres' death. But then, the Moody Park riot happened, and HPD's back was against the wall. Caldwell was tipped off by a colleague that the U.S. Department of Justice was considering putting them into receivership, meaning the feds would come in and take control of the department. And at the same time, he had to turn his attention to another, even more urgent development on the ground, which the producers of Man in the Middle were also very concerned about. Including such matters as homicide, forcible rape, robbery, assaults, burglary, larceny, and auto theft. There were over 27,000 cases reported to the Houston Police Department in the year 1960. During 1969, there were nearly 70,000 such cases reported. In 1970, over 80,000 cases. And the situation continues to worsen. It was the late 70s and violent crime and homicide rates were reaching a high watermark in cities all over the country. But Houston was now about to become known as the murder capital of the U.S. And according to the police, a rising percentage of those deaths were happening in the Spanish-speaking neighborhoods. As more and more undocumented immigrants moved to the city, many were easy prey for those looking to victimize somebody. In a community that didn't trust HPD, and rightfully so, as we've laid out, many people didn't want to call the cops if they ran into trouble. 
And if they did call the police, there was another hurdle. Few people at the Houston Police Department even spoke enough Spanish to know how to help them. Crimes were going unsolved. As Caldwell searched for a more meaningful solution, there were stopgap efforts, like a Spanish class that a local university professor started to teach. Houston Police Department's rank and file began to come up with their own fixes, too. Some detectives began to invite a Latino reporter named J.J. Garcia, who was often hanging around in HPD's press room, to come along and help translate at crime scenes. They would call on me. You want to go, J.J.? Yeah, sure, man. You know, I saved on gas. I was really hurting for money and all of that. And uh, I got the story before anybody else got the story. As helpful as it was to have a journalist turned unofficial police interpreter writing along, it was no real solution. J.J. could see there was a clear and growing need for homicide detectives who spoke Spanish. I heard that there was a backlog of cases, you know, and they're not solved, you know, all of them in the barrios. One of the only detectives J.J. Garcia knew who spoke Spanish was Jim Montero, a tall robbery detective with a calm demeanor who'd been around for years. So many years, in fact, that Jim had been a juvenile probation officer who used to come by Cecil's house looking for his brothers. An officer that Cecil remembers as actually being kind of nice. As J.J. Garcia recalled, he and Jim Montero, along with a few others, started to talk about creating a special Spanish-speaking squad. The idea came about maybe organizing a, a group that specialized in Spanish-language cases, and for that they called it Jim. Jim could speak real good Spanish. Soon, Cecil and Jim's paths would cross in a whole new way. Jim's captain asked if Jim would consider transferring from armed robbery into homicide. They desperately needed him. Jim hesitated. He loved his job. But in the end, his supervisors arranged for him to be loaned to homicide to assist in cases where Spanish translation was needed. That loan would last for the rest of Jim's policing career. Jim started trying to chip away at the mountain of unsolved murders in Houston's vecindarios. But it didn't take long for him to become inundated with cases. Within a few weeks, he was overwhelmed by the workload. Jim told Chief Caldwell he needed help. But the problem was, as Cecil recalls, there were only three Spanish-speaking detectives in all of HPD. And it wasn't a guarantee that they'd want to join Jim Montero's squad. Maybe they could draft a few Spanish-speaking patrol officers. Jim could take them under his wing and teach them the ropes of working a scene, and they could help translate for the detectives on the case. Caldwell liked the sound of it. Here's Cecil again. So they sat down and they were talking about, hey, well, just give me five good guys and let's see what we can do. So the next question was, besides speaking Spanish, what kind of patrol officers were they looking for? Jim set out several criteria he thought they needed. First, he wanted officers that were hard workers. He knew what his caseload was, and he needed a group willing to jump into the massive abyss of cases that awaited them. Second, he wanted officers that had been born and raised in Houston, who had connections in the community, and who still lived there. This was actually revolutionary. Jim Montero didn't realize it at the time, 
but he was laying out a philosophy that would find its way into police departments everywhere. Community policing. The understanding, according to Jim Montero, was that the patrolmen would be used as interpreters. So with that settled, Jim started assembling his dream team. Among those on Jim's list of recruits, Cecil Mosqueda. Jim passed the word on to Cecil's lieutenant, who called Cecil out during roll call one day and asked him to come to his office for a chat. He says, uh, how'd you like to go to homicide? I sounded real stupid, I mean, but I didn't know what homicide was. He said, well, you've been chosen to go to homicide for a special assignment. And I sat there for a moment trying to take this information in. Are you interested? His lieutenant wanted to know. Cecil hesitated. He said, I know, you're not going to go unless your partner goes. Is that correct? That's correct, lieutenant. If he don't go, I don't go. The lieutenant had noticed how close Cecil and Bobby had become, but he didn't think Gatewood met the criteria to be part of this new team that Jim Montero was forming. The way Cecil remembers it, the lieutenant had bypassed Bobby on account of his surname. It's Gatewood. I said, lieutenant. I said, he's bilingual. His daddy was white somewhere along the line, but his mama is Hispanic. He speaks Spanish. They were in. Show up at the homicide office at 8 o'clock on Monday morning, the lieutenant said. You're going to be in a special assignment and see where it goes. And I walked out kind of puzzled. I had no idea what homicide was or what I was getting into. I had no idea. But first, Cecil and Bobby had one last Saturday patrol shift to complete. And here is where Cecil was about to hit his third close call. And it would be the closest call of all. It was a shift that nearly changed his trajectory entirely. An evening shift, which started at 3 p.m. I said, Bobby, look, this is our last day. You know, we're going to homicide. Today's the last day that we're going to be in the streets. I said, we're just going to coast. We're not going to do anything. We don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to work late because I want to be well rested for Monday morning. So this is our last day. Just make the best of it. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll we'll do that. It was late in the summer, where in Houston, that means the air is so thick, it makes everything feel like it's in slow motion. Seriously, as a Texan, I can say, if you've never been in Houston in the summer, consider yourself lucky. Cecil and Bobby stopped at a corner store and picked up some potato chips and Cokes, which the owner always gave to them for free. As they drove around eating their snacks, Cecil noticed a man in the street. The case file wasn't available for what we're about to tell you, so the following account is based on Cecil's recollection. We're coming down Nichols, and that's when we encountered this citizen. And he's waving us down, and we stop, and I'm sitting on the passenger side, and Bobby's driving, and we stop and say, yes, sir, how can we help you? The man leaned on Cecil's door and said, My girlfriend, she done took off with her lover. I didn't know at the time, you know, but she's got my son. And I want my son. She kidnapped my son. Then, out of the corner of Cecil's eye, he saw someone, a woman. And she's coming down and kind of walking, and I'm watching her for now. And she's just walking nonchalant. 
Suddenly, the woman was right outside his patrol car window. He said, this old fool, he complained about me, that old son, well, and he shot him right there in front of me. I said, whoa. The man fell to the pavement out of Cecil's sight. He says in a split second, the woman had turned the gun on him. Cecil leaned as far over as he could towards Bobby in the driver's seat. Bobby was trying desperately to get out of the car. And I see that barrel. I see that little barrel. It's a 22 Saturday night special. And I see my whole life right there in that barrel. I mean, it's like slow-mo. We're talking about seconds. Somewhere, somehow, as I'm leaning all the way down, I almost jumped in my partner's lap, and I was able to pull my gun and, and shot her. When I looked out, I see the guy on the ground. I see the gun laying there, and I'm looking out, and I didn't see the woman. I said, where is the woman? Cecil and Bobby both got out of the car. Bobby spotted the woman laid out on the pavement behind the patrol car. It just kind of grazed her. She let to tell about it. The woman was hurt, but alive. And Cecil and Bobby were stunned, but standing. And I realized how close I could have been shot. It took me about three days to realize, yikes, like that, you know, because things were happening so quick. Now, Cecil and Bobby had to give their statements to homicide detectives, the same ones they were scheduled to work alongside on Monday morning. Court records confirm that after being interviewed, Cecil was no-billed, which means that a grand jury didn't find evidence that would justify a criminal trial. He was cleared. These days, grand jury decisions not to bring charges in police shootings are being intensely scrutinized. In a case like this one, Closed decades ago, records are scant. We scoured Harris County's court records and HPD records, but even with an address, date, and Cecil's name, officials could not find a case file. Without that, we weren't able to identify the woman in Cecil's story or learn more details. It's worth noting, though, and this is important, that in Cecil's long career, a career spanning 43 years, that would be the first and only time he used his service weapon, and he has no use of force complaints in his record. On Sunday, just hours after the shooting, he went suit shopping to get ready for his new gig. I mean, I'd never owned a suit in my life. I went to the men's warehouse and I got two suits. I had no idea what I was getting into. I just knew that I needed to look presentable, I didn't know how detectives dressed. I had no idea. I'll never forget this, because I can still remember that it was yesterday. So it's Monday morning, August 20th, 1979, 8 o'clock. Cecil has a habit of being late, but tried his best to make it on time. At 8 a.m., he took the elevator up to the sixth floor, to the homicide division. He walked in, wearing a new pinstripe suit. They're all looking at it, who is these guys? We were on suits, I mean, we were three-piece suits. I mean, I think we look good. They had never seen a group of young Hispanic guys that look good. One by one, the new homicide officers arrived and were directed to a small room. That's how we first met. Some of the faces, like Jim Montero, were familiar to Cecil, but not all. There were five of them. Cecil Mosqueda, 
then 26, Joe Silvera Jr., who was 28, U.P. Hernandez, who was 33, Robert Gatewood, who was 29, and José de León, who was 38. The room that would become their headquarters was a repurposed interview room. There's one table, one typewriter, that's it. It was not spacious. And we were all sitting in there, kind of waiting, looking at each other, like, what do we do now? Houston's homicides were up 35% from the year before at that time. Homicides involving Latino victims were up 88%. On the floor in their small office were stacks of manila file folders, case files involving victims with Spanish last names. Their challenge was laid clearly in front of them. So many files. It was go time. Next time on Chicano Squad. This brand new squad of homicide officers, fresh from their patrol cars, gets handed a Herculean task. We got a lot of cases. They haven't been solved. They don't have anything. They're not even being worked. The cases seemed unsolvable and never ending. There were just so many. We're sitting on the floor reading reports, and the reports were lousy. There was no leads. As rumblings of the squad's existence begin to make the rounds, some in the Latino community view them as traitors. Some of my friends stopped talking to me after I told them I had joined the police department, thought I was a sellout. With almost no training, they are tasked with solving a group of supposedly unsolvable homicides. And then the other shoe drops. This experiment has a ticking clock. The guys have only 90 days to reverse the tide of unsolved murders and the expanding rift within the Latino community, or HPD, would have to think of something else. If HPD didn't start solving the mounting murders, it threatened to blow the lid off the racial tension still boiling in Houston. En esta ciudad, hay necesidad, Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Our associate producers are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Betubiza. Episode 3 was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Lissa Soep and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design come from Brandon McFarlane and Julian Kwasneski. Our theme music was written and produced for this series by Brownout. Editorial support on this episode from Garrett Crow. Fact-checking by Charlotte Silver. Special thanks to Jim Montero and Pete Mosqueda. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Klijanski for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristel Alonso. If you like this episode and if you think this story is important, one of the best ways to support the show is to share it with your friends and family. Find out more at FrequencyMachine.com slash Chicano Squad. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'll see you in episode four.